0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: Asian Unfiltered, from a different
0: lens. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Asian Unfiltered with your host, Charlie here. And for today's episode, I am so excited to present Bill Esparza. But before we get started, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. I'm talking NBA, MMA, bowling. It's the best way to place your bets and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sports book experts. So, Who is Bill Esparza? He is a James Beard Award winner for La Mexicano. He's an honest food writer and reviewer. He owns and operates the Takiando Taco Festival here in Los Angeles. He's produced for the Food Network with Andrew Zimmern. He's also been an on-air camera fixer for Phil Rosenthal. For both his shows, by the way, I'll have what Phil's having in Netflix's Somebody Feed Phil. And literally a tastemaker and a birria champion presenter.
1: Well, you know, yeah, I I sort of consider myself a uh, an insider outsider, and that does, yeah, that that's. I mean, I think for all of us that are, you know, what you know, Asian Americans, uh, Mexican Americans, uh, Salvadoran Americans, we do we can have the ability to have this appreciation for the culture that people that live there would, you know, just like I, I live in Hollywood and I'm like, you know, I don't go to the walk of fame and, uh, and hang out there. I don't appreciate it. But when I drive by, I see like, man, all these people really want to see this and they really want to experience it. It's a weird thing, you know, and I never even send anybody there, but I think I appreciate Hollywood in a very different way of living here. Same thing, you know, if you're living in another country, you just don't see your food in the way an outsider, you know, when we travel, we want to experience a certain thing. We have this like very like mindset about what we want and it really gets to be distilled into like what's really, you know, like any travel guide says what, where to stay, what to eat, what to do. It gets distilled into these things and I think I'm able to see that in a different way than people who live there. Uh, can't.
0: I think a lot of this misunderstanding and racial tension could be erased if uh, Jeff Bezos just funded people to travel the world. So that way you can just accept everyone's differences and go, oh, that's cool. I, I like that. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where, where someone like you, you get to travel and really it's like fruitional experience. You feel it and you taste it, you know, the digestion of it versus just watching something.
1: Yeah, you do have to see how people live in other places and how and 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 not see it through the old, you know, I guess what what's been called the ugly American traveler and that the ugly American. Tra- one thing that's not mentioned about the ugly American travel is they really don't want to learn. They almost come with this idea of like we I'm American. We, everything we do is better. We have democracy. You don't. We have this. We have that. And so you come there, and and you see you've seen it before on like uh, your family members. I mean, before there was Facebook, there was always these like, yeah, I went to Russia, and boy, they really have it bad over there. You know, they're not like us over here, all civilized. And and there was that sort of mentality that you're not like. Did you not learn anything there? Did you not see anything? Did you not experience anything? Did you not listen to people? Is there only just rich and poor, and that's it? There's no other experiences. And there's, you know, and and even like a place like like Cuba for me, you know, everyone like, oh, you know, it's a communist nation, blah, blah, blah. They have they don't have freedoms. They don't have this. They don't have that. But then when you get there and you talk to people, there's a lot there's a lot of nuances and layers that you would never know, you know, if you didn't actually spend some time there.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the Internet is both a gift and a curse. But, you know, for for fair minded people who want to enjoy other cultures it's such a great tool to utilize and learn and unlearn premeditated thoughts of other people you know yeah and and and, um one thing i did want to talk about and and i know you've been asked this to death so we'll go on a contextual timeline all right you you grew up in stockton and then you eventually um moved to the bay which is a which is a brown centric culture too but um, what was the migration from Stockton to the Bay relatively quick? Like were more your formative years at the Bay already.
1: Well, I mean, if you grow up, so if you grow up in central California, especially Stockton, where you're right in the middle, you know, the armpit of California, it, you, um, you spend weekends. And I mean, Sacramento's not so exciting, but when you're younger, you go to Sacramento, you know, you to go see historical things and, and Old Town Sacramento family outings, but we spent a lot of time going to San Francisco, Oakland. So if you want to go see a concert, you were in San Francisco. You didn't go to. There's no concerts in Stockton. We had a little theater, have a little theater, and and so you know my dad was my dad was very much a a Chicano hippie, Chicano hippie biker crowd. You know that, and so for him, you know my dad saw Hendrix. You know he saw Led Zeppelin in, in the, in the seventies. And so for him, he was always going to San Francisco to see concerts and he would take us too. So we we were always going there, always going. So I got to see, I got to know the Bay area very well. Uh, sports, our teams were the giants or the Oakland A's. So we saw games at, at the, at candlestick, you know, we saw games at the Oakland Coliseum. I saw my first concert, that I can remember, like like a rock concert, was Van Halen in, in uh, like eighty eighty one at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. So we, the Bay Area, is part of your your DNA. If you're from, you're from Stockton and you do want to get out of town, you know you have enough means, and and that's the thing. It doesn't take much. You don't need a lot of money to go spend the day in San Francisco. Back then, you didn't anyway.
0: <laughs> so I, I assume that influenced you quite a bit because you you were a musician also before you became a writer yeah you attending concerts your dad being that wide-minded and in in involving you to his activities like attending concerts um was it was it pretty easy for you to develop the love for the saxophone or was that like did you go through a a myriad of choices do i go with keys or go with a guitar
1: no i i mean I would say that the saxophone found me, you know, mm. and, and so I grew up listening to, you know, it's, I actually just retrieved my dad's um, record collection from storage mm. uh, just this last year during the pandemic, in the, pa- during the pandemic, I had been wanting to go, It's it's been in storage. So I was, I was looking through it and I was thinking, you know, I, w- I remember listening to this stuff, but I didn't realize how sophisticated my dad's musical tastes were. So we, you know, I was hearing Santana. I mean, I, I remember Santana being played a lot, and I also remember this group Passport. Passports is really kind of avant-garde European uh, jazz fusion band that came out in the seventies. That that you know, when people talk about Miles, they don't really talk about Passport, but they were they were very obscure. But but my dad was into Passport. Of course, Mahavishnu Orchestra, uh, Billy Cobham, you know, George Duke, all that, all those jazz fusion artists we were we were listening to and we were listening to the 70s uh horn bands you know uh, blood sweat and tears tower power um and so i was always hearing the saxophone uh, i mean you know today you don't really hear it on the radio anymore it's been gone from the radio for a long time now but but back then it's pretty common to hear saxophone and horn sections on the radio so, um, and, 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 you know, and, and my home and my dad played records pretty much all day long. So there wasn't really a quiet time in the house. There was just music. So I started grabbing instruments, like there was a guitar around our house and I started playing with that. And then one day in fourth grade, the music teacher come, you know, back when we had music programs in schools. Um, I mean, we had a bigger elementary program, I think than a lot of high schools have these days, you know? But uh, a woman came to the class and she's like, who wants to sign up for a band? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. Like, I didn't know that that's what you do. And so <clears throat> I wanted to play saxophone, but the music store didn't have one. And, or, and, and so they lied to me and they said that I was too small for it. And so I was like, you know what? This is a cr- bunch of bulls. So I just said, I'll just take the flute. <laughs> you know, I didn't like the trumpet. I didn't like the sound of the clarinet. So I was like, OK, I'll, I'll do the flute. So I started on flute. And as soon as I could get my hands on a saxophone because, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, um, I think sixth grade, the teacher had one. And I just said, can I take it home? And I, I took it home and I practiced and I learned it on my own and started playing in, in band the next week on the saxophone. So that's where that happened.
0: So I assume there wasn't much resistance from your parents? No. You to pursue that as a career also in the very beginning? No.
1: No. there Yeah, there wasn't really much. Um, I mean, it was not – it was right around that time. I think my parents also separated too. So, um, you know, that was, that was their distraction, but no, no, nobody really ever bothered me about, I didn't have um, a a lot of restrictions as a kid. And, and I didn't have a lot of, um, I mean, I sort of just did my own thing, you know? And, and so the music was just all me.
0: So you mentioned before that you were touring in Japan. And then a lot of your bandmates were like, dude, I'm going to buy like a bag of Fritos. But you were like, no, I'm, I'm trying Japanese food and it's expensive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think right away, as soon as I started traveling, I didn't really know. I mean, as a kid, I didn't get a lot of opportunities. I had a handful of opportunities to travel mostly with my grandparents, not my, you know, my parents can afford it. My dad wasn't really that, that type. So when I started traveling, the first thing that hit me was like, Oh my God, I can actually experience some things here that I can't other places. And, but yeah, when I went to, it was weird. I was, I was thinking, you know, musicians have a funny musicians are funny. You know, they, you get this idea of, of like saving money and part, we get a per diem and that per diem is supposed to be spent on your, your food. And obviously that's something you negotiate and that's that's a, that's a big part of the gig but a lot of musicians look at that like okay that's part of my paycheck so they're in to- we're in Tokyo and these guys are going to the 711 and they're getting ramen and loading up and, and they're so proud of that like oh my god i just i spent like nothing this week and i'm like what the hell are you like I, that doesn't make any sense to me and so i was just walking around and and this was before of course i didn't i didn't have the ability like I do now to to research things and, and and a knowledge of of any cuisines really except for Mexican food that I'd grown up with. Um, and so I just started walking around and trying things and going into random restaurants. I went down into the subway and I found that there was levels and that there were restaurants down there. So I went into noodle shops and and tried things and and just you know naturally open and i didn't really care what it was i just wanted to try it and yeah and that made me sort of a really small percentage there are musicians that are very worldly and and they're, they're ex- if they play somewhere on a regular basis they become sort of experts in that that town or that culture you know what what to do there but um, i was part of a really small group of of musicians who, who basically <laughs> You know, we're used to sleeping on a mattress on the floor, saving all their per diem, you know, uh, living with their uh, in their girlfriend's place. (laughs) The cheap bohemian musician life, you know, but I I spent all my per diem, every cent and more.
0: Right. Did, Did that feel like it was basic? It was just a phase because you were like, oh, I'm more into food. Or did that discovery eventually come that you wanted to become a writer well, I mean,
1: I think it just kind of happened. I I, I was uh, I was playing with this with this artist, and I was we were working a lot in Central America, and I was starting to play in Mexico, and I was starting to, you know, explore Latin America, and so when I came back from my trips, I'd always look around for those restaurants because I missed, like I went I went to El Salvador for, I was there for maybe a, two days, right, but. I ate so much around town in those two days, (laughs) but I came back in L.A. and I started to realize like, Oh my God, we have like actually neighborhoods with all these, uh, Salvadorino restaurants. And I started just going to every one of them. I didn't, at first I was just like, I'll just pick one and I'll try one next week and next week I'll try another. And it was really more about like me connecting with what I was missing about a place. And so um, I mean, at one point, I, I remember when I'd, I'd play weddings and, and cat, you know, what we call casuals, stupid corporate parties and stuff playing brick house. And, and I play in downtown LA and I'd finish up and I'd go to this, this, there was this one restaurant on Western in a Koreatown that was half Salvadoran, half um, Honduran. And I had just gone to the, both of those places. So I was like, I was in love with this place. And it wasn't particularly exceptional food. It was very simple, but I just loved going there, drinking, you know, Salvadoran beer, having the food and and like the late night, really bad uh, karaoke crowd that would come there and sing really loud <laughs> and way too much reverb. And so I was just, I just was, to me, it was just an adventure, you know? So I, I started to do that. I'd go to a state, I'd go to a town. I was looking for that food. And all of a sudden I started to realize that, I could go into a restaurant and it's it's a Sinaloan cuisine from Culiacan and I would look at the menu I'm like wow that's not the food I had over there and so I started kind of writing a blog because I had heard about a blog to sort of keep track of where I was going and and then a few years in a few years into it uh, uh somebody put analytics on there for me and um a person in the food community I I was on Chowhound for a couple of, uh, I remember. And, and Chow Hound too, was one of those things where I got on there and I realized, wow, nobody knows about this food. And I started learning that if I post something or if I, if I make a comment, people would get really pissed off, you know, like people get like, oh man, I don't understand this. I'm just saying that like, that's not this cuisine. It's this because, and so, you know, and then when this person put analytics on, I started to realize uh, that people were reading my blog, you know, and it's my blog started out just as whatever, but it started to get focused. I, I don't know. I just, I decided that, you know, there's something interesting happening in, in all the Latin American cuisines. And there's an, I think there's an interest in it. And I, th- I should just like write about it, you know, and, um, without really any plan, everything that happened after that sort of is an accident, you know?
0: Uh, I recently interviewed Jen Harris.
1: Uh, oh yes. LA I Time saw that.
0: Which, which, uh, I, I need to talk to you about a project we're conjuring up, which maybe you might be interested in get involved with. Um, she dominantly eats Chinese food, but with all your traveling, is there a second culture that you consume as voraciously as much as Mexican food? Well, I mean,
1: because I traveled a lot in, in uh, all over Latin America. Sure. It, it's really all of Latin America. And, and that's, you know, I, I would say that early on the Mexican, you know, the Mexican food thing. I mean, there's, there's people out there that see me as a writer of all that, like, like all I write about is tacos or something, you know, and, and to me writing about that is just writing about Mexican cuisine, Mexican in Mexican cuisine. All of our food is available in tacos, just about, except for like ceviche and a few things, sure. but just about and soup, you know, but everything else you can have in a, a, We eat, that's the way we eat. Like, even if you don't get tacos, you get a plate, you have tortillas. And you're making little taquitos, and you're so it's kind of just part of the culture to me. But um, and other people think that I only do Mexican cuisine, you know. And I'm always fun. It's always funny when when I'm in a in a in a professional setting, and people will say, "Well, like yeah, you're you know, I'm going to introduce you to this guy, and he's an expert on Mexican cuisine or tacos." But I I'm just as knowledgeable about and 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 you know I write about Brazilian cuisine. Uh, Colombian, Salvadoran, Guatemalan—I mean, I've I visited those places, um, and I've—I uh, have a fascination with their cultures as well. But outside of that, I—I really love—I'd say that I love seafood, so it doesn't really matter what part of the world that comes from, to me. But um, I live in—I live right here in Thai Town, so I go to a lot of Thai restaurants. I go to a lot of Armenian restaurants. We have a little Armenia here in Thai town
0: live in Glendale.
1: Yeah. Right. Oh, right. And I also have a lot of Oaxacan restaurants in my neighborhood. I only shop at basically Oaxacan markets and one Argentine market for the most part, you know, and then, um, so I really love those cuisines because, uh, and Central American, you know, I, you know, Guatemala and Salvador, but I also really love Japanese food, uh, Middle Eastern, not just the Armenian, the different armenians the persian armenian cuisines so the lebanese armenian the but armenian from russia
0: know,
1: right russian armenian is not so it's not as good as the other ones but but it's interesting and and so i've always been i've always gone to those restaurants so i'd say middle eastern um and diff- various asian cuisines uh that i that i really love i mean i outside of latin america i've been to thailand i've been to singapore I've been to Japan like three times and um, three or four times. So uh, those are places that I, I I just won't go anywhere unless I'm, I'm forced to for some reason for work or something, I'm not going to go anywhere that doesn't have great food. I'm just not going to do it on my own.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm going to sidebar this question real quick because uh, there's an MMA fighter that I recently interviewed and he grew up in Japan and I, I stayed in singapore for a little bit during my formative years right so when it comes to meat on a stick in your opinion is it japan or singapore oh and, and there's no there's no wrong or right answer you know it's yeah just- I,
1: I i i'm just i'm trying to think of like you know like of course singapore has satay and 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 other but I, I can't really, I, I would say that I don't really know the range. Oh, okay. Um, Japanese- or food in
0: general. How about food in general? Just compare both. Because a lot of people don't know of Singaporean food because it's three ethnicities, you know?
1: Right, right. No, I mean, and that's that's the thing I was exploring when I was there is, and, uh, you know, again, just the same thing going to random. I was actually there for the first World Street Food Congress, I was Mexico's representative and I had brought one of Mexico's representative, and I had brought La That we, we went together and I was really it's just their support mostly, but they were there uh, selling at this totally fa- failed event. Like I've never seen a, 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 a bigger festival have zero people almost there. I've never seen a, a festival that poorly attended. It was, it was phenomenal, like how few people showed up at this thing on a daily basis. And, and they did it way too many days. It was like, like 10 days straight. And it was starting from, from 8am until like midnight. And it was just the stupidest, they, they eventually got it together. Like the second year was much more successful. just, it just was, you know, their first year and everything. But so, you know, once I, I check in once a day and the rest of the day I just go and I'd run around and eat. And that was sort of my, like intention, like, okay, I'm, mean, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to support La Dense, but I'm going to go like, and I even one, one night I, I flew to, to Bangkok to get, I said, are you guys okay if I just disappear for about <laughs> right a, a day and a half? It's so close anyways. Oh yeah. No, I was in a, I was in a, a food court and they had all these travel agencies, offices around the food court. And I'm just like, I was seeing all these flights to you know, all, you know, to Malaysia and they were all cheap. I'm like, oh my God, let's do the Bangkok one, you know? And so I did that experience. That was amazing. Um, But yeah, I, I'd say that, you know, of course, Japanese has more diversity of cuisine and it's, and, and it's different styles of Japanese cuisine. Singapore has just, it almost seems like it's always, Put together as a bunch of dishes like the cultural dishes of singapore sure rather, rather than regions because it's just one city a city state you know <clears throat> so it's like once you've checked off that that list of dishes uh you know you, you've sort of accomplished you've hit for the cycle in singapore but i i, I do like i think in general japanese cuisine has all these little <clears throat> I, I relate to it a lot because of of the specialization that there is in, in, I mean, Singapore has it too, but both of, both of them are, are delicious. You know,
0: that's interesting that you brought up this world street food Congress. I was in the Philippines uh, when it was Bourdain's last year, he was alive. All right. Uh, I actually, you know, tried to meet him, you know, showed my press pass, but KFCito was like so available because everyone ignored KFCito. And you're right. Like the, the hours are so long and it's stretched for so many days. I think if they compacted that into like a weekend, it would feel so much more successful. One, one day. <laughs> sure. 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 One day. Yeah, exactly. Well, they, he, when you
1: went and when it was in the Philippines and uh, and so, yeah, I know KF uh, Sito very well. I, he, he Before the pandemic, he, he was in L.A. and, and had, I had dinner with him. Uh, here but um yeah even even after even they shortened the hours and they shortened the number of days it still was like way too much it's like but for i think for kfcito it was always about like networking and you know i i kind of feel in a way that that event was just really a front for their for their new york uh hawker market that they were gonna sure be- <laughs> bourdain market i was like you know, we're all just here, like helping Bourdain and 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 KFC to like make millions in in, in New York. Of course, it, it never happened, but uh, but uh, no, that was a fun experience.
0: That's so astute of you to bring that up because I opened up my own um, uh, LLC in Manila, and he was like, "Well, for this X amount, because there was a there was a, <laughs> there was a there was a hawkers center in one of the malls in the Philippines." delicious food completely ignored slept on just kind of like exactly what you're talking about the world it's called the word world street food congress and it's like you should go nuts and especially like i supported there was a lady that i think she was salvadorian you know i macked down on all the latin foods because i wanted to show them love because it's like you know all the filipinos were going headed towards the asian food but you know they're like well it's okay it's okay but it's unfortunate i'd love for like a hawker center to be developed here in LA, but I don't know how realistic that would be post pandemic.
1: It's the, the, the real challenge of these things is, and, and, you know, we, we, we go to these things all the time and you always have these high expectations for these new markets, uh, you know, grant, even grand central markets uh, transformation. When you, when you go there, there's still so much like lame food there, you know? And, and even for, you know, and like, for Mexican food, there's, I, I, I mean, there's, there's vendor. It's very cool that they kept some of the vendors that were there before, especially the people that sell the chiles and things, but like, you know, the Mexican American food this year is just like beans and rice combo plate things. And, and they don't have any really cool Mexican things in there. The carnitas place is cool, you know, and, um, and the pupusa place, but everything else is everything. It doesn't really feel like, what's hot in Los Angeles is in terms of Mexican food. Um, and so every time people put every, all these markets want these vendors, they want the vendors, but they don't know how to give them deals and, and make the financial arrangements so that they can easily go in. They want they're they they're, they're landlords looking for people to rent space and you can't develop a really cool market that way. You have to be more invested in the, in the actual vendors and and long term yeah exactly and and so you know all these food court things are are lame because the only people that can come in are like people that that you know just want to do you you get these weird concepts that only exist in those markets by people who are trying to start a business or something but not like having the cool vendors you know if you're if you're a teddy's red tacos and you've got all you know your trucks your your businesses they're they're making so much money And then the soccer or, you know, food court comes along and says, Hey, we'd love to have you here. And they like, but you have to pay this much rent and you're only going to get this much money. And they're like, why would I do that? I have, I'm busy on the weekend and I'm making tons of cash. And like, why am I going to go into that? So it's, it's it's hard. It's hard from the business side for people to come up with the model that's going to really bring in, in that cool thing that you're talking about that would be wonderful. And then would people go to it, you know, um, I mean, it's it's funny in the Philippines that you you don't have an interest in that, but you know Walter Mansky's coffee shop is killing it over there.
0: Yep. Tim <laughs> Horton. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's weird, you know, like with with third world Asians, it has to be almost like Western Western approved. Yeah, they they want
1: they're like we don't you know give us some luxury, give us treat us like we deserve something nice. Totally. <laughs> and- but it has to be, you know, Western, exactly.
0: It, it's almost in a Kardashian e-entertainment presentation, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, the only backlash against the Kardashians is here in, in the United States. The rest of the world just loves. Oh, they eat them up, man. In Mexico, Brazil, you know. they. I mean, uh, one, even, even after this show is over, like Paris, you go to the, you, you arrive in Sao Paulo Airport and there's Paris Hilton ads all over the the airport and you know watch uh companies and and perfume lines and all these things so those they can they can just make a fortune Japan too right
0: yeah for some reason a lot of people who aren't from the west point west yeah. and it's not it's not a grass is greener because i think everyone's intelligent enough to go these Kardashians are making us insecure with all their ass, ass implants, and there's Instagram fakeries, you know. But for some reason, it's just the weirdest form of idolatry. You know, it's yeah. the weirdest form. Um, I, I wanted to ask you because you were talking about vendors. Since you threw takiando, um, what was that like dealing with an analog vendor? Like they, they, they weren't digitized, so you know, you had to speak with, I know, I know that my dad was in the restaurant business, so you have to like deal in cash and almost word of mouth. And it's like a pain to get someone to sign something because, okay, I guess this is trust, you know, that analog minded, almost like bartering system.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I've been doing events in Los Angeles here for a long time. Sure. And going back to like, trying to think of like the first, so I remember the, one of the first ones I I remember was that there was a Beverly Hills food and wine and Evan Kleiman had asked me to bring some vendors. And at the time it was like, it was new. And so I, I got, I rounded up five vendors and it was really hard. Believe me, it was really hard to do that at the time. Sure. Because Mexican street vendors, uh, food trucks, there's, you have to, it's about trust and, I was just really, I mean, I, back in, when I was just blogging, <clears throat> you know, I didn't go around, I, I just went around eight places and wrote about them. I didn't, um, I, if I found out about the business, it was just because I was just a customer asking questions like, you know, where are you guys from? You know, I wanted to hear their stories and i and then they, they likely never even see it, you know? And, and so it wasn't like I was there as a writer and I was being treated. I was just a customer. So I slowly started to build up a relationship as a customer because I, I would always go back to these places. I would bring friends, you know, and, and so when I did the, the five restaurants at that event, it, like I said, it was, it was difficult. And I think the day of only four of them showed up, one, one was one never showed up and they <laughs> were just, they were the hit of this Beverly Hills food and wine event <clears throat> and, It was, and then there was one year that the taste and LA food and wine did an event together. They, they combined their events. And so Roy Choi had his taco, um, festival part night, whatever. And they asked me to curate a handful of vendors again, to help bring a little bit more credibility to their taco event in terms of vendors. And then I had also, you know, I had also been asked to uh, do this for LA street food fest. So the very, the, the first annual LA street food fest, I probably curated again, about four or five vendors. And then I did three of those events. Um, so, and I was bringing, and I was starting to bring people from, from Mexico, people that I knew from down there. So it all started kind of like, you know, I'm doing this event, doing that event. And then when I got the opportunity to do uh, Landia, the first year I did that was when it started. So I went from 25 vendors to 42 vendors to um, 80 something and then to 120. The last two years that we did it uh, before I quit, uh, we were up to 120 vendors, you know. And so in a way, I kind of feel like the vendors and myself, we went through this process of, of trust, building trust building the relationships and also learning about the process. And so some of those vendors now are doing all kinds of events. You know, some of them went on to do other types of, you know, they do, you see them at LA times taste now. And, and it was because they learned that process. And so when I, when I did um, Takiando, you know, it really wasn't hard to curate. I mean, I knew what I, I had to turn people down because of limited space And because I was looking for a certain kind of experience. So that part of it wasn't hard and and it wasn't hard getting vendors to, to do it. Uh, The hard part is again, you know, you're dealing with the, the sites, the, the venues, everybody is just trying to make maximum dollar off of you instead of helping you make a successful event. And so we, we did something really amazing that first event and is that we, I wanted to have a, you know, LA weekly didn't give a crap about the vendors, you know, and.
0: They're so busy printing up my digital flyers for hipsters to go to parties and shit. So. Right.
1: And at the end, and really the, while I had the team that worked with me, the people who own the magazine didn't give a crap about me either. And I, I learned that when they came down they they basically, came and they wanted me to do a walkthrough with all the investors and owners to show them how to do a taco festival in all the markets.
0: And were you established as Bill Esparza
1: already then? Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and, and I was being, you know, and I I was being paid and, and I had gotten a little bit by the third year, they actually started paying me a decent amount, you know, and, uh, but the, they wanted to expand and not include me at all. And but they wanted my expertise and and for me to guide them through the process. So, you know, I, I just sort of like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna walk these guys around, but I'm not telling them anything about how I do things. And 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 I just kind of told them, I, I used the time actually to pitch the owner, like, hey, you know, I can uh, you know, if you wanted to expand this, I'd love to be a part of it, love to be on how to shape it the way it is here in LA. And he's just kind of like, nah, you're an LA guy. And, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I just curated Bizarre Foods Guatemala. I think if I can do Bizarre Foods Guatemala, from, uh, I can do Denver, you know. Sure. Because I was already, I was already And I'm not Guatemalan, by the way. Right. I, I was already working with, produ- you know, I was working with 0.0, all the production. I, I worked on Bourdain's shows, you know, as, as a as a fixer on camera sometimes. And then, but other times off camera, just consulting on, and, and connecting people. I'm like, I can do this. I'm like, I'm a professional at this. But he just like, you know, he didn't even say hi to me. You know, he, he when I, when I, I, I think the last year I did it, he didn't even come by and say hi, like n- never said thank you, you know, just a real jackass. And, and so when they got the new owners in, if it wasn't already bad enough, they were very pro Trump people. And unless, and then they fired all the staff and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to announce on Twitter that I quit. And then I'm going to send them an I quit message um, right, right minutes after that, because this this is just, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, they still tried to, I, I did meet with them after that, but I basically said, you know, <laughs> you, you, you guys are going to try, you guys want to to regain your credibility through me and I'm just not going to do it. But I was already, you know, looking so what I wanted to do with with Tukiando is I wanted to to make an event that we cared about the customers that we wanted to give them good you know LA LA weekly to get to 120 like I I told I told them I go you know the 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 relationships that I need to make 120 or 160 vendors is is going to take a couple of years because I can't just sometimes I would just go buy a place and I get to, I try it out. I said, you know, I like this place, but they're not trusting. I said, you know, once you come to the event, come check it out, see what it's like, or, or maybe I try them for the next year, you know, but you can't do that and, and go from this leap from whatever we were at to 120, And, and so they started like, Oh, we got these people and they say they'll do it. And, and I was just like, no, no, no. I go, okay. That can be, and and that's a horrible position to be in because it's making me be like, no, you're no you're you're not good enough, and you are good enough, and you're mediocre, for for what the crowd wants, and and you're gonna bring down the event. But I don't want to tell vendors that. I mean, I don't want to be in that position. I want to be able to say, this is the, the group that I want that wants to be here. That 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 uh, believe because you know I there's people that I have great relationships with and and but. They're doing an event is not their thing, and that's fine. It doesn't affect me on the editorial side. It doesn't change anything that I do on the editorial side when as a writer. Um, And I always tell them, I go, look, you don't have to do. I don't want you to to do it if you don't if you don't feel like 100. You really want to do it, and just trust that when it comes time for me to write about the the things that I do, that it doesn't affect my my judgment on that. Even if even if I have a negative experience, even if a uh, a vendor is horrible to me. I'm still, as a as a writer, I'm going to forget all about all that and just talk about their food. But the uh, we had a great customer experience. People were super happy. The vendors, it, we 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 cut off the number of sales. We could have actually put in another 50 people, and we would have actually made money. Just 50 more bodies in there probably wouldn't have affected the event too much. But we made the decision, like, okay, that's it. We're cutting it off here. We sold out the day before from our smaller number that we were going for. And so it was relaxed. People weren't complaining about lines so much. The vendors were having a good time. One vendor said he felt like, because, you know, I feel like I'm at a charity event, but it's not a charity event, you know? And, and, uh, there's just really good vibes. And I think that was my, that was my goal to not lose my ass and, uh and to make sure that people went away happy and and that that the vendors like had a great great experience and were valued because they were not i had to go i had to value them for la weekly but now the event itself could value them which was a nice change
0: do you feel like some of the vendors uh you know coming from i'm half filipino half chinese some of the vendors were like oh no that's not my lane, which is why they were, they wanted to do it, but were acting afraid to do it. Did you ever experience that? Or they were just, this is so unfamiliar, Bill. I love you, but they're so like self effacing and just want to be in a smaller lane. Um, well, you know, so, you, you know, when, when you are in,
1: in our position, you don't just get to be a, a, a person that talks about food or a food writer. You're, you do end up being sort of an activist and, and an advisor too. So some of these some of these uh, restaurants learned and they got it. So I would always explain what the benefit is, but I would and, and the other thing that I really worked on in the events is like, okay, now that you said yes <laughs> and you've you're gonna do it' here's, the, here's how you can really get something out of it. So I made sure. On the day of the event, I go around. I talk to every vendor, and I and I give them sort of a little pep talk for the day. It's like, here's what you're going to do: look your customers in the eye, say hello to them, uh, give them a card if you want to give them a card, give them a discount if you want to give them a discount, but t- or tell them where you're located. Do something to engage that customer that day because this is your chance to get in front of a new audience. There's going to be. I learned that from Roy Choice team. Um, you know they were they were at a food event. Um, for another LA weekly event. And I remember I just, I witnessed, it was, uh, I think it's Alice, Alice. She's one of the, the, she was, or maybe still is one of the, the Kogi people. And um, there was a guy that came up to the Kogi booth. He, he had one of the tacos and he's like, wow, this is really good. He goes, do you guys have a restaurant? And I'm like, to show." I, and he walked away and I go, I go, is there seriously a corner of Los Angeles where people have never heard of Kogi? She goes, that's why we do these events. And I'm like, okay. And so I took that, that, that lesson. And I always tell them, I always tell them about it. Like, look at, look at Kogi, look at this guy. He's, you know, especially now he's even, you know, he's world famous. And I go, they still do these events because of this reason they were still doing it. And so I, I do make sure that they're informed so that they can get the best out of the experience. I also tell them the truth about it. You know, I go, you're absolutely in a, you know, you are taking a gamble and that's why you should engage the customers. It, it is, it is a burden for you to take the day off and it is an expense. even if we, the stipend uh, we, so I, so for my own personal event, we actually were able to increase the stipend over nice. what, what the giant corporate magazine would not do, you know, and so we increased the stipend because what we wanted, we wanted the smaller vendors um, to make sure we want. And the, and the thing that, that I was really, that was really important to me is that we didn't treat people differently. You know, there's all these festivals where celebrity chefs come in and they get way more money. And then they ask a, a you know, a black chef to come in and they don't pay them anything. We made sure everybody got the same no matter what. <clears throat> and, but we, we raised it again, to the detriment of profitability, because I wanted to make sure that small vendors could take the day off and it would be less of a of a burden for them than it was when they had done the LA weekly event with me. You know. So no, I I, I don't I, I mean, I think sometimes there's been times when I've known people, you know, I have a story that it's funny, you know, my I I'm I'm really good friends with um Ezra Don't
0: know who, what um, it
1: is. He's the the founder of Mexicali taco company taco and Company who's got Salazar and now he's you know he's known all over the place uh, he was on the, the 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 TV show the chef competition what's that um, final table and and he's got a TV show on YouTube now and you know, he's and so he actually so there, there was one day when I was talking to him about and it was for l a street food fest and he was like he did tell me he goes, you know because man, I, I, I want to do it. He goes, but right now I got my customers. Like I know, I, I know what about to bring and I, and they always show up and they're loyal. And like, I just want to, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can handle if, you know, a bunch of people start coming like how he was thinking, well, what if a bunch of people start coming and then, but they don't come on Monday, they come on, on Saturday night, they, they show up right after the event. And then a few weeks later, I'm stuck with all this product. Cause so he was just like, he was thinking, I just have my cart and my, and, and that's it. And it's safe. <laughs> and, and I, and I did, I did say to him, literally, I said, you know, I go, that's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard that you don't want to grow your business. I go, you know, you have something special and this, uh, th- this is an opportunity for you to uh, broaden your name here in Los Angeles beyond your, your crowd and and do something different i go i don't know i mean as a people do these events as a business decision don't do it because it's and i and i always again i would always tell vendors that too it's like don't do it because you want to please me because you don't have to you don't have to please me i go do it because it's a good business decision for you and i i'm going to help you make it a better uh day for you is in the best way i can and you know, I always looked for, even though I didn't have to, I mean, LA Weekly did their own promotion. I would always do radio and TV stuff. Sometimes we didn't even need the sales. I did it only because I wanted other promotional opportunities for the vendors. So, and I, and I always moved, I didn't favor any group. I would always rotate it. I would find different people, um, to, to do the opportunities to, to take, take part in the opportunities. But so as did this event, and of course today, I'm not saying that that's, I'm not claiming responsibility for his success. His he is responsible for his success. I'm saying that that was one instance where I sort of intervened and said, you know, you re- that that doesn't make sense to me. You're a business person. You're trying to sit, you're trying to sell tacos and make money, and and I I think this is a good investment for you. And so he did it, and he became a big star after that because I think he felt confident and realized that he could grow and, and expand and. And when he got shut down by the, the city, you know, he quickly investors came in and and they opened their first brick and mortar, and so and that's really where his success began was was the fact that, shutting him him down, gave an opportunity for him to find out that he had people out there that really believed in him, and that were willing to put down dollars, to uh, open a restaurant with him, and so so yeah, there's been there's been some things where I, I know people well enough where I can say here's what other businesses are doing and here's the opportunities you have. And, and, but, 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 you know, I'd say going like from Takiando and in the future, Takiando when we can do it at 2022 is the the earliest I think I can do an event again. You know, I I only want people that want to be there um, and understand it. I don't want to convince people anymore. And I don't feel like I, I, I'm at the point now I don't have to, Uh, people, people, there's enough vendors out there that know what this opportunity is. And, and the, and the the other thing that I try to do is I try to keep one of the reasons why I'm very serious about the talent that's there, because I don't want to feel, I don't want my chef uh, friends coming from Mexico and seeing vendors that don't um, match their quality and stature, you know, and whether it's a if, if it's going to be a, a street vendor, there should be somebody that excels at their tradition and is doing something special because I don't, I don't, I, I think it's a lot of these chefs go to these events and cooks go to the events. I'm like, Oh my God, like, look who's here. And that's what it felt for me. Like the last year of, of Landia is there was a lot of vendors that I felt lowered the quality of the, the people who had made great sacrifices to come there from out of town. And so I, I want people to feel like, I mean, I think, I think we're all like that, right? If we get invited, we want to be part of our peer group. We don't want to, we don't want to be in a position where we feel uncomfortable to be in there. Like it's, it it hurts our brand or something. And so that's, that's important to me that everybody, I want the, the, these mom and pop vendors in, in, and I want, I want them to, to go Go over and talk to the chef from Monterrey or from Tijuana that came in. I want Laguerrense to talk to Marisco Jalisco and for them to interact with each other. I think that's like really important.
0: And for my other sponsor of the show, Canon, it's time to make your outdoor experiences better with Kanon. Canon sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. They're made with Japanese optics that makes their lenses clearer, lighter, stronger and Italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch. Use the exclusive code CANONCAST15 at canon.com to receive 15% off on your first pair. That's K-A-E-N-O-N-C-A-S-T-15. Canon. Clearly better. Is there, like, a form of meat tribalism? Like, you know how with steaks is like, oh, I'm a bone and ribeye guy, and you... Fucking filet fucks, you you guys don't like tasty food. Like, is there like oh I'm a I'm a birria guy. You uh, you carnitas folks. You, you guys are cool, but these Asada people, they're lazy. You guys are whack. Is, is there like a meat tribalism <laughs> in, in tra- strata?
1: No, no. Mm. I mean, no. There, there's there is definitely like a pride that people have in their in their towns and their states and their regions. And, you know, they, they they tried to do that thing with, with um, the mole <laughs> festival here. Like, they tried to do this thing, like this rivalry between Puebla and Oaxaca, and it never really surfaced. <laughs> it was just a mole festival, and people tried different moles. You know, it wasn't really like a, a true rivalry. Brasil Camacho, you ain't shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. No, there there isn't that. I mean, there might be individual things you know, between mm. vendors. And I mean, there's a lot of people in the birria scene and I'm sure there's beef. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice.
1: I'm sure there is uh, in, in there with, with, because there's so many of those vendors and they're all capitalizing on, and, you know, I, I would say that the two, the most prominent ones, the, the ones that really started it, uh, Teddy's and Birria Gonzalez. I mean, talking to them, there's definitely some things that have happened where people have copied them um, copy, even copied the design Ugh. like Virieri B- 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 Gonzalez that circular uh, label that they have on the side of their truck everybody's doing that now. They're, Bonds copied. and Johns yeah exactly and and so I'm sure there's like, it, like I, I do occasionally have a few things where I'm aware of vendors I don't want to put next to each other
0: <laughs>
1: you know and, uh, yeah, so yeah, that's so, too,
0: through personal disputes,
1: that's personal disputes. And that's really rare. And that happens in all professions. You know, I mean, anytime you have a big event, you have to be careful. You do have to be careful who you put next to each other. You know, we, with LA weekly, you know, one of their sponsors was like, uh, vivid or something like that, you know, is in uh,
0: the triple X. Yeah. Mm. And
1: so one year, I think one year they were next to, um, I had, what's what's uh which was uh casa vega there
0: i had mm. casa
1: vega which i was really happy to have there because i uh, that's a great classic mexican-american restaurant
0: Cadillac but... margaritas galore
1: exactly oh yeah and <clears throat> she was not happy being next to, to vivid and or, or, or it was vivid <laughs> or something or, or or experiment rhino or one of these things that was a sponsor of la weekly and I'm like okay i was like oh note to self next year i have to make sure that you know
0: carnitas and dildos don't work well i mean i don't
1: want to be i don't want to put it next to somebody who's going to be uncomfortable and i don't want to put it next to somebody who's going to be too comfortable you know it's like let's let's let it be somewhere where it's innocuous it doesn't bother you know uh, anybody and and uh but but yeah other than that and and the the one or two little uh situations where people just don't want to be around each other it's pretty rare super rare
0: uh, you you say something really important that I catch um, when you forgive me if I mispronounce it. birria. That's um, no, fine. You, you always mentioned that it's a pre-Spanish.
1: Yes, it's dish. a pre-Hispanic dish.
0: Yeah. Please, please enlighten the listening audience and myself why it's important to say that. Because the Castilians could be like, "Oh, you indios f- and your messy, sloppy goat dish." Whatever you know, I, there's a level of importance to you saying that, which I like to give you your flowers and stating
1: it. <laughs> well, yeah, the thing is, the the technique is a, adobo, so the adobo is where you make make a, a a marinade of chiles, and it does have a little bit of um, vinegar in there and something, uh, which you know, obviously they, there was no vinegar in pre Hispanic times, but what a lot of people don't appreciate is that everything that, in, that was in the the cuisines before the arrival of the Spanish was all, we already had all these things. We already had acid. We had, <clears throat> before limes came, there was acid. There was other plants that provided these things. There were, the, the quelites, the, the very powerful herbs. I mean, you can put eight, or eight spices in a dish from the spice trade and make it really tasty. Or you can put one, uh, Santa leaf and grind it up and you're going to get major complexities from that in in the dish that are going to interact with the meat with whatever proteins and vegetables and stuff it's going to be incredible so we already had these complexities we did have spices that were local Um, we did have all these things so the the idea of making a chili paste and rubbing um, uh, protein and and you know again we had pigs They weren't domesticated pigs, but we had wild boar. We had peccari, um, and we had all kinds of animals, deer, um, you know, and of course armadillos and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of, all kinds of turkeys, um, all kinds of wonderful proteins that were available that were used in these, in these dishes. So. When you're, whatever you're doing beef, if you're doing goat, you're doing lamb, you're doing whatever. Birria is the name of the technique in the dish, and you can have a birria of anything. Okay. So, what, one thing about the Spanish language is that the most important thing is, comes first in the name of the dish. So, it's birria de res. It's a birria, but it's beef. It's birria, it's goat, you know. So, you're using that same technique, but the original one is the one they do in Jalisco. And they were doing that before there were goats with other animals. You know, they were sure. doing this technique and originally it's a pit roasting uh, tradition that now is done mostly in ovens. It's or large pots with, you know, aluminum foil rigging inside and, and grates to control temperature, things like that. But, and, um, and then of course the Tijuana style, the one that everybody's crazy about is a, is a stew and you can, there, there's birria. There's a simple one that we make at home. If you, if you make that adobo and you cook your meat in it, that's a birria. You can, it can be more of a guisado or it can be more of a stew like the Tijuana version or it's roasted meats like the one you find in Jalisco um, or ne- nearby Michoacan, uh, Aguascalientes where my family's from, we do birria, Zacatecas, thats that oven-roasted um, ones that they do, and uh, that you know. Any anytime you have a longer cooking cooking process, you're obviously going to get more flavors and more complexities, and more range of the of the textures and all these things, right? So the the original birria is a little bit more elaborate than the the Tijuana one, but the Tijuana one is just It, it got popular because of the dipping, you know.
0: Sure, it just, it looks unctuous and yeah. communal, you know.
1: The funny thing about it is that birria means something awful and ugly,
0: messy, kind of right, right?
1: Yeah, messy and and yet on Instagram it's like sexy and hot and and trendy, you know. Funny,
0: and, and that's why you know, like people like you that puts food on the good blast, exposing it. You know what would be, the Spaniards. Would their warrior garb go like hey? That's messy native food, but to us now,
1: yeah. Well, the the the, the problem with with colonization is the fact that the colon the colonizers get all the credit for cuisines. You know, they get to they get to they get to impose their influence upon these cuisines. Say, so, well, that's Spanish influence, that's French influenced, and it and it doesn't go the other way. So the story is Europeans just grabbed tomatoes and took them back and they didn't what? They didn't study how to cook with, they didn't learn how to cook with tomatoes. Of course they did. Of course they saw all the techniques, the way tomatoes were used. Tomato sauce, all tomato sauce is Mexican. I don't care if it's Italian on a pizza, on a pizza margarita, it's Mexican technique, but you never hear that. You never hear someone say, oh, this uh, the margarita pizza is, is, comes from Mexican technique. You know, And to actually put tomato sauce on a flatbread that's more Mexican than than any kind of you know goat or beef in a stew. That's that's most that's already a Mexican or Brazilian stew or whatever. And all they all they're they're using is a commercial protein that was forced upon them. They didn't they didn't have a choice to use beef. They didn't like oh. There's always always these wonderful stories about like oh they adopted didn't adopt a thing. It was mercantilism. They were forced to stop. uh um, and trade. Yeah. They were forced to stop foraging and hunting and they were forced to be uh, consumers uh the span they wanted the spanish came and they enslaved the people and then they wanted them to buy and consume their things you know the mexican revolution started because um one, one of the things is that um uh, padre hidalgo was t- teaching the native americans how to make their own wine because the spanish would not let People make wine in the Americas. You had to buy Spanish wine. So there's not adoption. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it has nothing to to me. It has nothing to do with Europeans at at all. And uh, unless we want to have that conversation about how cassoulet is is really, you know, a, a Central American or a South American stew or how, you know, gazpacho. We can we can just go on and on and on about so many Italian foods that are uh, tomatoes are just all over, you know, all over um, Europe and, and, and the world, you know, uh, chili peppers, I mean, all over Asia, you know, and Europe as well, um, is no one ever says Mexican or Peruvian technique. And it's just, it's the colonizer controlling the way we talk about food. And uh, which I noticed on, on Stanley Tucci, Tucci's Italy, you know, they talk In about Italy, all these, right. Yeah, he talks about all these influences never mentions the Americas. Um, and even, even Italian cuisine, uh, always there's always credit given, I mean, sorry, French cuisine uh, is always given, the Italians are always given credit for Catherine de' Medici introducing fine dining that, in, in the court that came into uh, France. But if you look at those early menus, they were serving chocolate, they're serving uh, tomatoes, squash. And they're using all these products that they had got for the Americas without ever saying that Catherine de' Medici's modern cooking was influenced by Native American uh techniques, you know.
0: It's always the privilege. Like if you come from a sponsored family like the Medici family, it's like yeah. it's ours. It's like is the Spaniards bring over goats, therefore it is our dish. But right. we just change the meat, you know. And 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 I and I know I've dated a few Latin girls and they talk about like the flamenco and how there's the porteros that claim from that. And, and that, that's a whole biblical conversation, which yeah, I, I appreciate you always saying this is pre-Spanish because that's really important. I've taken a lot of your time. Uh, I do want to talk to you or via email about the project. Yeah, but, please do. Again. But uh, this is one important part too. Um, with the Hawaiian culture, you know, they refer to whites or Caucasians as Haole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some people take that as pejorative or to, to the Hawaiians, they say it, it's descriptive. Yeah. The, the, for you as a crossover personality also has pocho changed it, it, or is it still, it depends on the context. Hey, pocho, it could be friendly or Hey, pocho. You know.
1: no. Well, well, the thing is that, that when I was, you know, years ago, pocho was, yeah, it was an insult. It was the way it was basically a way of denying our our history, you know, so the the if you're from a place and uh, Guatemala, you're from Mexico and, and you grew up speaking Spanish and you have, you know, that's your first language. So one one of the ways to exclude us from from the, the culture was saying, oh you're, oh, you're not a real Mexican. You're a pocho. Sure. You know? And so that was just really just a way of saying and and without acknowledging the fact that what, what what i think one of the things that we've contributed to this discussion is like we both speak colonizers languages and we're just speaking i speak english as a first language because of racism not because my parents wanted me to speak english but in the you know when i was born in 68 man we just the civil rights movement has had uh, just ended and we were entering a period of uh I mean my, my father's the the walkout generation, you know, my father's generation fought the civil rights, fought, fought for their civil rights, right? And and so one of the one of the one of the the takeaways was okay, we have to like teach our kids English first, give them American names, so that we not because we want to assimilate, because we just don't want them to be killed by police. Um you know, we don't want them to be discriminated against. We want them to be able to get jobs. We want them to be able to 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 uh, not be harassed because they can't speak English well. It's safety, so,
0: safe, chameleonizing, right? Yeah, a chameleon by safety,
1: right? So my, you know, the fact that I was taught English and de- I was denied Spanish, it was it was not just that I didn't learn it. I was I was forbidden to learn it until and I didn't start learning until after my dad passed away. You know. And so that's, that's a, it's a deeply, a deeply, I mean, it could, it could potentially be deeply hurting, uh, hurtful and insulting for me to think about that. But of course I, I'm not going to let, 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 that happen. But when somebody says, well, how come you don't speak Spanish for a am Well, it's, it's, it's quite complicated, but I'm speaking the colonizing colonizer language that of the place I grew up, just like you are. Uh, that's not our native, our, our native culture, you know, that's not where we came from. We didn't, we didn't really have a choice, but, but now pocho belongs to us and you can't insult us anymore. So somebody says, Oh, you're just a pocho. I'm like, yeah, I'm a pocho, you know? And that has a whole culture to it and a whole uh, pride that, you know, I think one of the wonderful things that's been happening in recent years with chefs like Wes Avila, you know, and uh, Carlos Salgado and Ray Garcia you know, you're having, you're seeing our culture now being broadcast, uh, nationally and internationally and, and, uh, gaining respect for our traditions. And now it's very cool to be Pocho. It's very cool to be Chicano, you know? And, uh, so I think that's, I'm, I'm I'm, fun. Yeah. We, we own it. We own the term now. No one can insult us, you know,
0: man. Uh, I didn't want to be so on the nose and using comparisons, even though the show is called Asian unfiltered, but I think talking to you should set a good example for like Filipino Americans and Asian Americans who never spoke it because if it's embarrassment or you're not going to be accepted by the Euro culture, but it's amazing for me to hear like how gangster you are when it comes to LA weekly. Fuck off. You know, how, how you put both how to how you do it, but both the Mexican and native Mexico culture on the good map. Phil Rosenthal uses you like in his in his last series. Um, I think it was season one when you guys shot I, that. In I Mexico? was on.
1: I was on season one when he was on. I want to say PBS, and then oh. I did, and I did his second season. Second season on Netflix, which was the new show. I did two. I did two shows with him.
0: So you're both the Sith Lord and Darth Vader because somebody feed Phil. A lot of people don't know. There's. I'll have what Phil's, Phil's having.
1: Right, right, right. Right.
0: So <laughs> you, you cross generation Star Wars with that saber. And um, I will be emailing you. Uh, I'm, I'm ho- I saved a lot of questions in case you do agree to be part or a guest on okay. their talent. But man, I, I really appreciate you. And a lot of people like you and Jen Harris are like the Jonathan Golds right now. You guys are pushing things really strong. And you guys deserve a fucking boutique of flowers, you know, oh. with everything that you do.
1: There wasn't, there was no Jonathan Gold without us.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. B boy dance. Be real. No, no, for sure, because he needs his 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 uh, fellow generals to fight the war.
1: He, I, I mean, you know, writing, no, no, no question there. Uh, an an exceptional uh, exceptional writer, but as far as uh, knowing the cuisine and and knowing uh, what people are eating uh definitely he was a follower not 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 a leader there you know and uh i got the i got the dms to uh to prove it i know
0: and and that's (laughs) why that that's why uh you deserve many a a podcast (laughs) series of props bro you really didn't mean to call you bro like that but no 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 i i think
1: it's you know i think it's actually an important part of the the conversation to have is it you know, at, at some point we need to get to the place where it doesn't need the approval of the white writer or the white television personality that that our, appro- our approval is enough, you know, and in uh, and our community. So I actually, when I write, I do not quote. I mean, sometimes it, the editors come in with like, you know, uh, th- this actually came up in a recent thing, like that one of these people had been to this place. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. no, 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 no. I don't need, we don't need the approval of the white guy that, that came there. It's not, it's not a, a slight against them. It's it? we don't need it. You know, it's we're writing. I'm writing about it. We're, we're and, and if I'm going to quote somebody, I'm going to quote another, uh, Mexican about Mexican food or if it's a Guatemala, I'm going to reach out into that community. I'm not going to go to somebody who just ate there because someone took them there. Sure. sure. <laughs> we're,
0: not, we're, we're not featuring it on the MAGA food network, you know? So. No,
1: no. So, I mean those
0: people all were led led,
1: they're all led to these places, you know. They're not um and they were explained what what it what it was. So
0: yeah, but and, and, and in closing, like Phil Rosenthal, he seems like a genuine soul. So I'm glad he's getting his his exposure too as a as the owner of ZPZ, you know? Yeah. So but but thank you again. I really appreciate you and we'll we'll keep in touch, sir. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Fantastic interview. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Asian Unfiltered on Apple
0: Podcasts and iTunes.